If you would, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 87. And if you're able, would you uh, stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Then those who sing as well as those who play the flutes shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, every word of God is perfect. Your word never fails. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to see Jesus and draw us to him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A long time ago in, not a galaxy far away, but in 410 A.D., uh, the city of Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire at that time, Uh, kind of reached the climax of its crumbling destruction, and it fell under the attack of Germanic tribes, namely the Visigoths coming in and sacking Rome and conquering it. Uh, And at the time, the fall of Rome was a, uh, as you can imagine, a devastating event for Roman citizens, for the whole of the Roman Empire, and it had a sharp impact on Christians. Uh, Think about it, this was a city that had uh, been around, been established, and and thrived and and flourished uh, at that point for nearly 1,100 years. That great city had been sacked and conquered. Uh, And even though Rome was not, you know, an entirely Christian city, it still held held great significance for Christians at the time. It was kind of the seat of uh, the Christian church in the empire at the time. Not to mention, Christian homes were destroyed, uh, families murdered, uh, brutality uh, executed on all, Christian and non-Christian alike. Buildings were set on fire, interestingly, except for churches. Uh, It was awful. It was devastating. And uh, as it happened, many began to ask and wonder whether this was the end of the Christian church, the Christian faith. If Rome was destroyed, they thought, what did that mean for Christians. At at the time, they found it hard to separate in their minds the Roman Empire from the Christian church. They'd been kind of closely joined together, for better or for worse, at that point. The church and the state had been joined at the hip, if you will. So they didn't know how to think about the church of Jesus outside of the category of the Roman Empire and the city of Rome. And so in their minds, if one fell, the other must soon be coming after it. 
Uh, out, of, out of this crisis and kind of in response to it, the African bishop and theologian Augustine of Hippo uh, wrote a book called The City of God. It's a long book. I've not read the entire thing, full disclosure. But in it, uh, he largely spends time answering the objections, the attacks of pagans. There were a bunch of pagans who said uh, the Rome, Roman city fell because Christians had abandoned the old Roman gods and they were worshiping Jesus, and this was judgment from the Roman gods because of what Christians were doing. So he spends a good bit of time in this book addressing that uh, attack and, and answering it quite well. Uh, but he also, in the book, answers the concerns of Christians, many of whom had tied up their Christian identity with their identity as citizens of the Roman Empire. In the book, Augustine argues that human history and human destiny, particularly that of Christians, uh, is never bound up with any earthly power, whether it's Rome or, or anything else. But rather, he directed their attention to the fact that there was another kingdom on earth, but that did not have its foundations on earth, a kingdom, a city whose builder and founder, whose builder and maker itself is God. In other words, in the midst of the crumbling of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, Augustine directed the attention of believers to their ultimate citizenship. Their, their ultimate unchanging and unshakable anchor and identity as citizens of the kingdom of God, members of Jesus' church, a church which will never crumble, no matter how fiercely attacked. Psalm 87 does, does something similar for us. If you, if you can think about it in our own kind of American context, context sometimes we've, we've done the same thing. We've, we've conflated identity as Christians with identity as, as Americans, and we've got a wonderful heritage and a great history behind us, but it's, it's a mistake to join those things together. Our identity is in Christ. Our hope is in uh, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the kingdom that is still coming. Our ultimate citizenship, even though we have a dual citizenship, uh, our ultimate citizenship is in the city of God and the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's tempting to kind of look around at how things are seemingly crumbling around us and to, to wring our hands and, and wonder what, you know, what in the world's going to happen and some concern is, is warranted. But we also need to be reminded we belong to a city, a people, a community whom God loves. And that love is fixed and unchanging and never fails. And it's a love that brings in all manner of people, all, all, all types of people, enemies, strangers, become friends, become family members in the city of God. And it's a love that comes to us and is meant to go through us to be a blessing to all the nations, that the nations might stream to the living God and find their citizenship, their identity in Christ and not in anything in this earth. And so we see in Psalm 87, we see that the Lord loves his people. The Lord loves his people. Look just at the first two verses here with me, if you will. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves, it's an ongoing verb, the Lord is loving the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. You notice how abrupt the psalm is, 
how abruptly it begins. It's like the psalmist has been thinking about, meditating on, thinking about the love of God for his people, and there's no introduction in the psalm. He just bursts into this joyful phrase, his foundation. Whose foundation? The Lord's foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves his people. It's not just the place. It's the place where God has chosen to dwell in love and in mercy among his people. Notice just four things about this love of God for his people. It's a love that is firmly established. The psalmist says his foundation is in the holy mountains. It's a fixed place. Uh, The Lord has chosen and will not change. He has chosen to set his love among those who belong to Jesus Christ upon the church. It's firmly established. Notice, too, that it's a self-originating love. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Two things should kind of stand out to us about that verse. Uh, All throughout the Old Testament, when it talks about the Lord choosing Jerusalem, choosing Israel, the emphasis is never on how great Israel is. It's never on how great and how unique Jerusalem is in itself. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. The Lord says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were great among the nations. You're actually, uh, you're stiff-necked and and you're rebellious. You're, You're not that great. But I am great and I have chosen to love you and to make you my people. It's a self-originating love. He chooses to set his name, his place, his temple, his sanctuary, his throne room in Jerusalem. Not the tallest of mountains, not the most glamorous of places, but it's his place where he dwells with his people. And his love, his free, sovereign love is what makes it beautiful. It's a love that is In other words, gracious, because it's where God dwells with his people. It's a love, too, that gives identity. Notice in verse 3, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. This is who we are as God's people. We are his city. We are the place where he has chosen to dwell among us. The church is the identity that God himself gives to us, the people of God. And finally, it's a love that delights. Verse 3, again, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Here's the point. The Lord loves his church. The Lord delights in his people. He delights in you individually as you have come to Christ, if you are in Christ. He delights in you. He loves you because of what Christ has done in your place. But as well, the emphasis here in the, in the psalm is he loves the gathered assembly of his people, his people collectively, the city of God, the gates of Zion, the whole people together. This is where he chooses to dwell with us. He is everywhere. God is everywhere present, but he is specially, uniquely present in covenant love when his people gather together for worship. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loves his church. And if the Lord loves his church, we also should love the church that Jesus has chosen, the church that Jesus has given himself for, using our gifts to love and to serve one another, to build up the body of Christ 
investing and helping others to follow Jesus well and to find their joy and their delight in him. The Lord loves his church. Notice this is an expansive love as well. It's a love that brings people in. It's not a love that kind of turns in on itself and ignores what's around it. It's a love that reaches out and brings in all types of people. The Lord graciously brings his enemies and all types of people to himself. Notice verse 4 in particular. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. Do you see what he's saying? He points to these other nations. Rahab is is another name for for Egypt. Rahab is kind of this uh, beast that is sometimes used to describe Egypt, but he's talking about Egypt. Egypt, Babylon. What do you know about Egypt and Babylon and their relationship to Israel? Are they buddies? Anybody in Israel naming their kid Egypt and Babylon because they love Egypt and Babylon? No. These are enemies, uh, fierce and ancient enemies, if you will. Egypt, the place of captivity. Um, Abraham's descendants being brought into Egypt, being made slaves, oppressed in Egypt, finally being brought out under Moses after being in bondage. Egypt is no friend to God's people. What about Babylon? Uh, It's likely, it's, it's possible, this psalm would have been written, at the very least used, by God's people in the midst of exile, exile in Babylon. Babylon who had come, who had conquered, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of God, the very place where God had chosen to dwell among his people. And yet, what is God saying about Egypt, about Babylon here? They are ones who know me. And I'll say about Egypt and Babylon and and the Philistines, Goliath, his people, And even distant Ethiopia, I'll say about them, this one was born there in Zion. People who were enemies, people who were strangers, far off from God's people, far off from God's presence in Jerusalem, God says of them, they are citizens. They will be citizens among my people. It's amazing. It's amazing that these words are there when you think about who these nations are. Psalm uh, 87 falls in the midst of book three of the Psalter, which highlights the devastation of Judah at the hands of the nations. Psalm 73 begins with the question, why are the wicked prospering and the righteous are suffering? Psalm 74 asks this question, why has the Lord rejected us? Psalm 77, again, will you reject us forever? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Psalm 79, the nations have invaded us, laid Jerusalem in ruins. And yet Psalm 87 says, those nations, they'll belong to me. They'll be part of my people. They'll be born in Zion. They will be citizens of Zion. This is a love that turns enemies into friends, strangers into family members. I think that that this is one of those places in the Bible um, where it's what you might call kind of a divine impression that just screams to us that the Bible is no ordinary book. 
that it's not just a book written by a bunch of people, but that it's God's word. This is one of those places that kind of jumps off the page because if you think about the way the Bible describes, the way God describes his people and his work of salvation in the scriptures, if it were just a book written by men, for men, you might think that we would look a little bit better, right? That it might highlight our successes, that it might highlight the good things that we do, but rather, what do you find in Scripture? Israel's failure over and over and over again. Their harlotry, running after other gods when the Lord has loved them so richly. They can't get it right, and yet God continues to love them because he has chosen to make them his people and to show grace to them. You see Israel's failure, but you also see the wickedness of Israel's neighbors. And here you see the Lord's intent to conquer them through grace. In Psalm 87, the Lord promises to deliver his people by conquering their enemies. As Palmer Robertson says, what a way to conquer an adversary through love through sacrifice, through bringing them into the family by grace. Now, you might say, why, why do it this way? Why would the Lord do it this way? The Lord loves to save. The, the Lord loves to exalt the grace of God in Jesus Christ by saving the people that you would least expect to be brought into God's family, like Babylonians and Egyptians and dirty old Philistines. But that's us, right? We're the ones who are unworthy. We're the ones who are strangers outside of Jesus Christ. We're the ones who deservedly ought to be standing on the outside of God's promises, on the outside of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, what has the Lord done? He's brought us in. He's made us family. He said of you and of me, if you are in Jesus Christ, you were born in Zion. Your citizenship is in the city of God. Your identity is in Christ. The Lord loves to save, to show his grace, and to build up to the crescendo of praise that we find in the book of Revelation, praising God for his unspeakable gift to his church in Christ with all nations, all types of people gathered around the throne. You've been brought into Zion. You've been born from above, from the Jerusalem above, by the Spirit's power, adopted by the Father as beloved children, privileged members of the family of God, citizens of Zion, with all the benefits that belong to us by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done in our place. Ephesians 2 talks about it this way. After it highlights being saved by grace through faith, not on the basis of works, Paul addresses Gentiles, uh, us, those who are outside historically of God's covenant. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is God's design to bring into his family those who were on the outside and to give us the privileges of belonging to him so that we can say we were born in Zion, citizens of God's city. It's a beautiful illustration of this from uh, missionary history uh, in the story of Elizabeth Elliot and the other missionaries who had served in Ecuador. You know the story, likely uh, several of the men who were serving with the missions group made contact with the, the natives there, the Aka Indians, and in 1956, uh, several of the men, maybe about half a dozen or so, were killed by these Aka Indians, these other men who found them on this beach and uh, speared them, killed them there in a brutal way. About two years after that, um, missionaries came back, Elizabeth Elliot and others came back among the Aka Indians, continued to share the love of Christ with them, the good news of Jesus dying for sinners and welcoming them into his kingdom. In 1958, many of this tribe were converted to Christ, including a man named Minkaye, who had been one of the men involved in the murder of these missionary men. One of the men who had been killed in that brutal attack in 1956 was a man named Nate Saint, and his son Steve uh, went back into the jungle and became friends with this man who had killed his father, participated in it. And this man, Minkaye, became an adopted father to Steve Saint, uh, whose father he had killed. Minkaye became a surrogate grandfather to Steve's children and spent the rest of his life preaching the glories and the treasures of God's grace to other tribes in that area, proclaiming the grace of God in Jesus. He died last April, a citizen of Zion. The Lord loves his people. It's an expansive love, a love that goes out and brings enemies and strangers into the fold, all through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and through his blood, through his righteousness, gives himself for us so that we will no longer be strangers and aliens, but would be brought into the household and made citizens. And the church is right at the heart of that redeeming purpose of God in the world. The Lord loves his people. The Lord brings into his people enemies and strangers, making them friends and children. And the Lord has established his church as the people through whom he will bring these blessings to the nations. Notice verse 7. It's a strange verse. It's a little difficult to understand, I, I felt. Then those who sing as well as those who play the flute shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. Literally, it just says, singers and dancers, all my springs are in you. You got to figure out what what it means. Uh, It's a climactic verse. And at the very least, it's highlighting the joy that God has in his people and the joy that we ought to have uh, in him and in his presence among us. Singers and dancers or flute players singing this song, celebrating the blessing of belonging to God's city, the church, saying, all my springs of joy are in you. What greater cause than this could make us sing and celebrate but to know that the love of the Father is ours 
through Jesus the Son. Notice the joy of their song. All my streams are in you, in Zion, in the church, the people among whom God dwells. So you have to ask two two questions, uh, and then we'll make some application. What are these streams, and why streams? So what, what are the streams? I think the streams he's talking about here is basically a metaphor for the life and the blessing of God, salvation through Christ. But why, why streams? Well, it's a, actually a common theme throughout the Bible. Hopefully you've seen as we've read some of these passages and even um, uh, sung glorious things of thee are spoken and we'll sing at the end, come thou fount of every blessing. The, this imagery of water, of rivers, of streams is all throughout the scripture representing the blessing of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And sometimes uh, God in his word grabs a, a theme, sometimes kind of a place of geography or geographical location or, or feature, sometimes grabs a theme and, and pulls it all the way through redemptive history to highlight God's redemptive purposes in the world and our role in those purposes. So let me kind of give one example and then uh, explain how the streams work in that regard. So one example of a theme that's pulled throughout the scriptures that highlights God's redeeming purpose and our role in it, the tree of life. Think about the tree of life for a second. In the garden, Adam and Eve are placed in this garden to work it, to keep it, to bear fruit, to, to multiply, to exercise dominion over this part of God's creation with the idea that that dominion and, and the presence of God among his people will spread over all the earth. Of course, that doesn't happen. (laughs) Sin comes in. Eve is deceived. She eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After being deceived by the serpent, she gives it to Adam, who's there with her. He eats. They both realize they're covered in the shame of sin. They're cut off from the garden, representing the presence of God there in his creation. And at the entrance to the garden are these seraphim, these burning angels, guarding the way with swords, flashing swords. You cannot enter because of your sin. Fast forward a little bit. They they couldn't go into the tree of life, in other words. Fast forward to the temple, the tabernacle. Again, the presence of God amidst the people of God. The tabernacle has in in, in its kind of central location the most holy place, God's throne room, like the Garden of Eden where the tree of life was. And there's garden imagery all over the temple, all over the tabernacle, the lampstand with the the candles on it, probably representing the tree of life. And blocking them from entering into the most holy place is a veil, a curtain, and woven into the curtain, do you know what it is? It's the seraphim. It's the burning ones, the angels, blocking the presence of sinful people into the presence of God, telling them, you're limited. You can only come in to life, fullness of life, fullness of God's blessing through sacrifice. It's blocked. It's guarded. Jesus comes. Fast forward a little bit more. He gives himself as a sacrifice on the cross. And do you know what the cross is called in several places in the New Testament? 
It's called the tree. It's called the cross sometimes also, but it's called the tree because it's the place where there's life, except not in the way that people expect it. It's life through death, the death of a substitute, the death of the Savior, the death of the one who is himself, both God and man, our perfect substitute and sacrifice. There's life through Jesus' tree because he bears away the curse of sin for us, and at his death, that veil in the temple cut from top to bottom, the presence of God is available to all who come now through Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, as we read, there's a river flowing from the throne of God down through the city. And what's on either side of the river? The tree of life. And maybe it's an orchard of, orchard, orchard of trees. Maybe it's just one tree and it's so big it covers both sides of the river. I can't tell. But it's there and it's full of life and its fruit is for the healing of the nations. God's redemptive purposes, the tree of life, all throughout Scripture. And then your role in it, your role in God's redemptive purposes, Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous, you, God's people, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He who is wise wins souls. In other words, you, as God's people, wherever you go, you bring the blessing of the tree of life. A small form, not in its fullness, obviously, but but you are the ones who are ambassadors of this city of God, of the greater kingdom that is coming, of the life and the blessing of belonging to God through Jesus. The fruit of your life is meant to be the tree of life, bringing others into the blessing of knowing God through faith in Jesus. Same thing with the streams. In Genesis 2, there's a a mist, a flow, like a bubbling fountain in the Garden of Eden, watering the ground, watering the earth. By the time you get to Genesis 2.10, it seems that this bubbling fountain has turned into a river flowing from Eden that divides into four major rivers. All throughout the Old Testament, water, streams, rivers are a sign of blessing from the life of God in the world. In Isaiah 12, Three tells us to draw water from the springs of salvation. God has become our salvation. A common picture of judgment is drought, no water. Dry and parched land where nothing can grow. When judgment comes, water dries up and the land turns into desolation. There's no life. And yet in Isaiah 41, the Lord promises rivers and streams in the desert, life flourishing, refreshing God's people afflicted, with sin. Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees a vision of the temple in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. It wasn't there. And from the altar in the temple, water begins to flow out of the temple, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, a flowing, roaring river. It flows east down to the Dead Sea. You know what grows and what lives and flourishes in the Dead Sea? Nothing. That's why it's called the Dead Sea, and yet the water from the temple goes down to the Dead Sea, and it transforms it into sweet, refreshing water where fish can live and flourish. It's the water of life flowing from the temple down and transforming the place where there was formerly death into life-giving waters. Revelation 22, same image. The river of life flows now from the throne of God. There is no temple flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the city 
the new, new Jerusalem, the blessing of God brought to completion, God's redemptive purposes, your role in God's redemptive purposes. John 7, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, often pictures, pictured as water poured out like in baptism. He promises the Holy Spirit to his people, and he says, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you see it all kind of brought together? The water of life, the river of life, it's in you because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And so the psalm says, all my streams are in you, which is another way of saying all of the ways that God has chosen to bless the world and to bring all manner of people to himself, he's put it in the church. He's given it to you, his people. You've been entrusted as stewards of the mystery of God revealed in Christ, the good news that God has come in his son and has given himself for sinners and calls us not to try harder, not to feel really, really bad about our sins so that if we feel bad enough, maybe he'll feel sorry for us. He calls you to repent and to trust and to find the water of life in Jesus and then promises that when you do that, you'll be filled with the same water and it'll flow out of you from your innermost being, which means you, the church, followers of Christ, wherever you are, you're like streams in the desert. Like uh, Wallace preached on Psalm 84 and talked about going through the valley of weeping. We turn it into a spring. We bring the water of life wherever we go. The gospel is like a roaring river, and it's, it's coming to you, and it can't stop. It shouldn't stop with you, but it's meant to go out through you into the midst of the parched and thirsty land in which we live. You bring joy in the midst of hopelessness. You bring life in the midst of death. You bring the aroma of Christ who is himself the water of life. The Lord loves his people, and the Lord loves to love people and to bring them into citizenship of his household. And then the Lord loves to use you as the church, filled with the living water, the Holy Spirit, to go out with the good news of Christ so that all the nations would be blessed through you and be brought into the city of God so that we might say not only of ourselves, but of others who come to know Christ, they were born in Zion. Let's pray.